My time is yours. I was the last man standing. And welcome back to the Vicious Circle. Sid, how you doing? Doing good tonight, Rob. How about yourself? I'm doing great, especially because we have a very special guest on tonight. Right. Someone you worked with at WCW. Right. Yes, Barry Norman. How are you, Barry? <laughs> I am a very special guest. Right? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a good thing, right? That is a good thing. I'm sure people all, all over the place are listening go, who? What? No. What? Uh, okay. They're going, yes, okay. Barry's finally on a podcast. That's what they're thinking. That's exactly <laughs> what they're thinking. And uh, how many people do they have to go through before no, they finally decide he's the guy? Yeah, he's <laughs> we won't tell you about that list. <laughs> but, Sid, why, why don't you tell us a bit about the history with you and Barry? <clears throat> well, I met Barry. He, 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 started, <laughs> he started WCW in the beginning days with Jim Hurd and he could actually tell the story a little bit better than me. He was one of the – when we saw a guy like Barry wearing the suit and the clipboard, it just meant extra work. And so I stayed away from Barry, and everybody else did too. And then finally he um, came up with me, and someone told him, you could get, probably talk to Sid if you talk about softball. And so he brought that up, and then he had a few things he wanted me to do, the promotional things. And then we started hanging out. He came by the house a lot. We'd have cookouts, and then – we played a little softball together, and we'd go to softball, um, those little swinging things, you know, those little pitching machines. We just hung out a lot, went to have sushi, worked out, you know, hung out in Atlanta. It was a great place. And t- Barry, you got any memories with hanging out in Atlanta? Yeah, I do. Um, like I said, everything should said, believe it or not, is absolutely 100% accurate. <laughs> Um, I, I was the guy that everybody ran from when I first started WCW. I, I didn't have the Rolodex to, you know, to get the, uh, the cast of movies or TV shows. So the most things I did at the beginning was try to promote the house shows, which means calling up at, you know, at 6 o'clock in the morning, some morning drive time radio station or some little you know, local newspaper. So when they saw me with the clipboard, as Sid said, they go running, oh, guy, it comes something stupid. And then we started hanging out, became friends, uh, as we said, and I never had sushi before until the first time where you know, Sid and I went out to dinner again, and he bought it was just two of us, and he ordered like sushi up there for like a hundred people. And it was, and, and I've never had sushi before. Now I'm going to be eating more sushi than I ever. I mean, I never was in a sushi place. I just the whole idea of it just like, oh, what people really eat that? <laughs> so that was my first memory of us hanging out together, and all of a sudden having God knows how much you know sushi in front of us. And hey, 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 this isn't bad. <laughs> and once he got me over that, we just, like I said, we'd hang out the uh, softball tournaments together, just go to dinner at his house. Um, it, was, it was just, you know, obviously he's doing a lot of traveling, so it was, you know, whenever we could get together. But it was fun. It was like he was the, the first guy at WCW that decided I'm not just you know, the, a stupid guy in a suit and a clipboard, that maybe I you know there's something else to me, and the softball helped break the ice. And then we just started becoming buds and hang out, and that was great. There you go. Tell him about the film we did together. Well, I uh, you know, 
became a, a filmmaker, and the way um, my director and I make films is um, it's all improv. So I was doing a film um, in, in Rome, Georgia, where I created a film festival because uh, there is a beautiful old um, bed and breakfast, an old Victorian house, and we thought, okay, that's a good setting. We don't know what the film is going to be. And I just asked, said, hey, you want to come down and do this? So, you know, he shows up, and what the film turned out to be was I'm the owner of, of the bed and breakfast with my wife, and I'm doing a horrible job at it. I'm just running into the ground, and we, I need loans to try to keep it going, the money, and the bank will uh, loan me money. And then this guy, this other friend of mine, who I hadn't seen for 25 years, we had worked together selling advertising, and he was in Texas, and I just called him up and said, hey, you want to be in a movie? <laughs> so he goes, sure. So he drives with his two teenage daughters, uh, you know, to Rome, Georgia, and in the movie, he plays a very, very rich guy who's also thinking about buying the, uh, you know, this bed and breakfast out from under me. So we have the scene where uh, I have actually fired his uh, daughters who are interns at my bed and breakfast, and he has a bone to pick with that, so he's meeting with me, and it's not going well, and Sid is my friend. He shows up while this guy you know, uh, is, is trying to lead me out, and it's actually a pivotal scene in the movie. Uh, Sid... Uh, uses his business acumen to completely change the narrative of this meeting between me and this guy who's all pissed off that I you know, fired his daughters. And supposedly we arrive at a, you know, we, we, we come up with a compromise. And the reason why it becomes a turning point in the film is because later uh, this guy really screws me. So the fact that we have the scene where it looks like everything's been worked out because Sid came up with this absolutely brilliant real business negotiation uh, part of the scene just made the fact that I'm now going to get really screwed later, it, it, it's the whole movie kind of hinged on that. Now, when you're doing improv, you have no idea what anything is going to hinge, what direction it's going to go, because it all depends on how you act in that improv scene. So that actually dictated, you know, it's the only scene he was able to do because of his time, but it actually dictated the rest of the film. So it was, you know, it, it was cool working with him that way and just watching, once again, uh, with Sid's background in wrestling, he can improv like I mean, you didn't have to tell him how to do it. He just came up with it. So it was a lot of fun, and uh, it was one of the, the one of the most fun uh, films that I did with the with the films I made. So that film was completely improv. Completely improv. A five day shoot. Uh, like I said, you just start with, um, with with a basic premise. We, once I I came up with the idea we're going to shoot this uh, beautiful Victorian bed and breakfast. Then an idea. Okay, you're the owner of the bed and breakfast, and then. You do, you do one scene, and then it, it, people just have to come up with ideas that you're playing yourself or only in this situation. No one is really acting. So, yes, I'm, I'm being myself, except in this situation, I'm married, and I own this bed and breakfast. Sid and I are friends in real life, so in the movie, he's my friend, coming to my defense when he sees a, a, a difficult situation. But because he's also a businessman, he understood it kind of where the scene was going, just the way my friend, my other friend was was, uh, was improvising, and comes up with that. So, and so then you come, okay, now that that scene's done, where does that lead us to go after that? So this is how you do it. And then the hardest thing with these rooms is edit, editing them, because there's no real narrative that you had to begin with. So the story is kind of working itself out, and it takes a long time to try to figure out exactly what the movie is. But it takes people like Sid who actually can do that. If you try to act in these totally improvisational films, it won't work. You'll, you'll see right through it. If you act yourself, but only in this particular situation, it works. 
So that's why, having said, even just for the one scene, we, we wanted to have him for more. Um, the original reason I actually had that, that I had to, that I use him in, uh, have you ever heard of the Red Hat Ladies? No. Red Hat Ladies is a social club. They're in cities all over the country. It's mostly elderly women, and they actually go out dressed in red hats and, and purple dresses, and they'll do things. They'll go to dinner. They'll go to movies. Uh, when I owned a movie theater in Brunswick, Maine, uh, Red Hat Ladies would show once a month for movie hall at Water Brothers. So the scene I originally envisioned with Sid and I is there's this restaurant in, in, um, in Rome, Georgia, that was the kind of place they would hang out to. It was called the Victorian Tea Room. It was a very nice little you know, place that they would have lunch. So my idea for, for the scene was that it was going to be all the Red Hat ladies and Sid and I, you know, I mean, I, I'm obviously not as big as Sid, but I, you know, <laughs> but I am 6'5", I was at that point, 230. So you're going to have these two, you know, pretty big guys having lunch together. I thought, what if we got into an argument and just started screaming and yelling at each other in front of this nice restaurant filled for the Red Hat ladies? So that was why I originally called Sid, and then he had to change to make film for, for, for lunch, so we ended up doing this whole other completely different scene that we just had to come up with at the time, and like I said, it's all improv, nothing scripted. We don't know who's going to say what or where it's going to lead to, so you just have to have people like Sid who can do that. And like, and, and the whole movie changed as, as a result of that of that scene. So then we can, well, then we try to think, okay, now what do we know? Now where we go? This, uh, we just have the scene will be compromised, so if we end it there where everyone's getting along, that's not going to work. So, yeah, the, it, it's just five days of shooting and a year of editing, you know, that they actually find the film. That is absolutely crazy. Hey, Barry, <clears throat> somebody's got yeah, a, it's a cool way to do it. Hey, somebody's got a question for you. You said about that movie, I think you had a rap for doing wrestlers in movies, and I think Mick Foley has said once that uh, he was in a movie with you and you stiffed him on the payoff. You know, I think, you know who this is, Barry? This is Internet Sid. You know Internet Sid, Barry? Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> don't, don't, oh, no, oh, God I'm me, Barry. I listen, Internet listen, Internet Sid. I mean, Barry, <laughs> you stiffed me on that payoff, too. Like Mick Foley, I want my money, dude. <laughs> don't start that laughing with me, man. I, um, the, the check's in the mail. I, now, I listen, Barry. Now, listen, you and I argue all the time. This is not Sid, Internet Sid. You, Internet Sid, do not get along. You've told Internet Sid, and I've heard this, that you were coming down here from Massachusetts to kill Internet Sid. Um, I, I did say that. Is, is there, oh, since I can't kill you now, since we're a thousand miles apart, do we have a, a mute button um, <laughs> or, 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 or a dump button? Don't you have a dump button when you do these things that just everything no? No, this is just record and then edit later. That's it, Barry. <laughs> no, okay, I'll tell so you. We can edit internet shit right out of here, right? <laughs> I'll tell you what, I do remember. You create a dialogue to make him sound like he's being nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Barry, I remember your first film festival I was with. It was at the, that was at Delatico. Remember that? I do. I, I, of course I remember it. Well, no, this thing, I'm telling you, that was so much ass. fun, Rob. Uh, he had uh, the first. Remember, he had John Waters as a special guest. Remember that? I of course I remember. I remember. Uh, should I should I tell everyone uh, what you said to John about about your son Frankie? I forgot. Go ahead and tell everybody that. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you, you you said um, um, you said uh, that if he would put you in um, in one of his movies, you give him Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I see. Okay, that he, was a trade. Put me in one of your friends. You're gonna have my. 
He still yeah. has Frank, so I'm guessing he was never in that movie. <laughs> you, you, you think? I mean, you think, uh, <laughs> that, that, there's an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you, that uh, was awesome. <laughs> right now, you and... and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, well, here's Annette Barry to give you an uh, remember <laughs> this memory where we were at that, uh, that cafe at the Monica Film Festival... And uh, someone said, hey, let's see if Barry and Sid will arm wrestle. And we did. And yes, you won, but not right away. It actually took you a minute. No, I don't remember that, Barry. <laughs> You're making that up. <laughs> that was see, Internet, see, Barry. Internet Barry. I, I could talk trash, too. <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> oh, man. Believe it or not, we really are friends. I know it doesn't sound like it every now and again. Oh, we, man. We really are. Now, Barry's one of my best friends, and has Barry been one of my best friends? It's really changed me for the good um, over the years. I don't call people names as much as I used to. And actually, this concept with a vicious circle, Barry laugh, but it's really Barry's idea, too, that we want to be honest about these things. Let's be Sid, not Internet Sid, and be Barry. And, um, talk about some real things. You know, Barry, we were talking last night, and we don't have a lot of time, but remember how we talked about music? And I want you to tell um, Robert... Um, I'm sorry, I'm so tired. Now. <laughs> About that story where you almost made it to Woodstock. Remember that? I, of course, I do. It's uh, 50 years ago, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, okay, since so, uh, since everyone wants to hear stories about me and not Sid, uh, <laughs> I was at uh, summer camp in Maine, um, and I, I'm 11 years old. But my oldest sister, though, she was three years old with me, and she was a hippie and hung out with people in their 20s. So I was getting information and exposed to things that a lot of kids weren't. I mean, I, I, I knew the music, so I knew that this, that, that this uh, the major concert called Woodstock was happening. I knew a lot of the bands were, uh, that were there. I knew that this was supposed to be the biggest happening. Well, the only thing I knew about how to get someplace uh, that age was hitchhiking. And from Mad Magazine, I, I, I thought that the only way you hitchhiked, you had to made a sign that had your destination city or bus. So I had a sign that I wrote up and said, Woodstock or bus. And I actually brought you know, my, you know, the only uh, things of hippie clothes I had, you know, to summer camp, which I thought I could be a dance or something I could wear them at. No, they don't have dances for a little kids at summer camp. But I, I had my, you know, my paisley shirt, my striped bell-bottom pants, my, you know, my, uh, my uh, fringe, you know, uh, suede jacket. So I put that on, took the sign out that said Woodstock or Bus, because, you know, upstate Maine is not that far from upstate New York. So I thought I'd get there and I'm going to be at Woodstock. Well, also, a car pulls over, and I go, hey, I got a ride. It's one of my camp counselors. You know, where the hell do you think you're going? Now, yeah, it's going to look really good for an 11-year-old you know, kid to also be missing some summer camp. You know, your, your, your parents will really, you know, they'll, they'll love that one. So I, I, I didn't make it to Woodstock, but I, but, I, but I did try. At 11 years old, I was on the road, you know, thinking I'm going to be there. And, I you know, and of course, I could have done like a million other people and swear that I was. Right, I mean, Woodstock had four to five hundred thousand people, but all the people that claimed they were there was like five million. So I could have been one of those guys, but no, nope, I'm honest. I tried to go, didn't get there. Hey, you tried. That's that's awesome trying. That's awesome, man. <laughs> I love the oh, story no, about Woodstock. Year old kids that have enough self awareness that hey, I, I got to be at this thing. This thing is going to be big. This is this is going to be huge. It's never going to be one. Of I mean, I don't know if I thought that far ahead that they'll never be like like this again. But I knew it was something, that it was going to be something really, really, really big, and that you have to be there. So that much I knew. That Who's I your favorite group? Camp, 
Who's the, your favorite group at the Woodstock? Who's my favorite group? Yeah. What was the best uh, act? You know, there's there were so many artists right that I know that I love that my sister exposed me to, and I still think to this day that a lot of them had their best performance ever. I've always been a huge fan of the Who, uh, and so I, I, I love their performance. But I also love what uh, Ten Years After, Flying uh, the Family Stone, uh, no, Joe Cocker. Um, I mean, Johnson, I mean, just the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, their first no uh, live performance together. Uh, it, wow. it would be hard for me to say. Wow. I'd probably say the Who, only because they were my favorite <laughs> band you know, going into it. You know, that they, their performance at Woodstock, but there were just so many that were just, like I said, the, the absolute best that they've ever done. Canned Heath. Canned uh, Heath. Oh, wow. Right, yes. I love going into wow. Woodstock. Uh, I mean, some of the bands that didn't make the cut on the movie, like the Grateful Dead, um, because their their performances weren't considered so unworldly. I mean, Jimi Hendrix closing uh, the, the concert and you know, playing with the Star Spangled Banner. Um, That's iconic. I, I yeah. Country Joe and the Fish. I, I mean, it, it, it's impossible to say which was my favorite, but, I, but if I was forced at them, when I'd say the Who. The Who. There you go. That's the, yeah. That's that's evil question there, Sid. That's like picking your no, favorite no, Spice Girl. What what it would have been to have been at that thing? You know, I told Barry when we were talking about it the other night, I remember even in Arkansas, we were affected by it. Now, I was a little younger than Barry, but I remember the bell bottoms coming out. It was the whole bell bottoms, the whole picture was just uh, people, the ocean of people at, at the concert. You could see the people in your pants and stuff, and hip hops, I mean, hip, bo- hip bottoms, where uh, hip huggers came in fashion in, the big, heavy bell bottom things. It was pretty cool. No doubt. So and you almost I mean, made every it. Every year, for every year in the, in the late sixties, for Halloween, I had my sister, you know, dress me up like a hippie. She, <laughs> she would like, uh, you know, use mascara to paint a Fu Manchu mustache, and she had a pea jacket she let me wear. So I mean, that's what I wanted to be. More than, I just thought it was the neatest thing in the world. I thought the music was great. You know, hippie chicks were, you know, were always friendly. The flower, ch- you know, the flower child. I said, there's just. And then of course, movies like, um, you know, Easy Rider also came out in nineteen sixty nine. And it was just everything about it. I just said, this is, this is the way society should be. People should just be digging music, digging each other, you know, you know free love, all that. It's just, you know, you know, protest war, no protest for civil rights. This is exactly how we're supposed to act as, as young people in a society. You know, I, I love the clothes. And, and the rebellion part of it, too, the fact that your parents just hated everything about it. I mean, it took me years to convince you know, my dad, no, I, I don't want to get a crew cut, <laughs> you know, because I, I oh. want to look like the Beatles. The long hair. So, yeah, yes. so it was just, you know, it's you know, 50 years ago, and we've never seen a time like that. When I hear you no know, uh, uh, millennials say, well, we have Lollapalooza, I said, okay, you show me you know, the, the, the movie about Lollapalooza. You show me the, the, a song you know, that was written about it, like uh, Joni Mitchell uh, wrote uh, Woodstock that she performed in the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young did. Yeah. You know, show me the soundtrack that people are still playing today on Lollapalooza that happened in the 90s, and then we can talk. Right, exactly. You know, until, you, until you can show what a mark it made. And I was at uh, Lollapalooza, too, when I had a radio show in 92. It was great, but you can't compare. See, I think the only thing like that... comparing uh, no, a space shuttle to the, the moon landing. You know, it, they, they just don't compare. No. The, the yeah. only thing that came close, I think, would be Live Aid in the 80s. But even then, that was for that's a totally different right. reason. It, it's totally different, but as far as, it, that, that's a very good comparison. Uh, completely different context and, 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 and reasons. 
But I, I would agree with you. That comes, that's way up there as far as a landmark event that people couldn't have predicted like, what a big event it would be. But you're I mean, right. Was, like, nobody ever even heard of Bob Geldof before. I mean, the Boomtown Rats had one small hit. Exactly. Like Monday, then all of a sudden he's the, the biggest you know, person on the planet to organize that. And Queen supposedly had their most iconic live performance at Live Aid. Oh, really? Yeah. I loved Queen, yep. man. But yeah. And then what, Phil Collins, uh, I, I guess, uh, go, doing live in Philadelphia, and I forget where else, uh, uh, the, 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 in the UK. I mean, he, he does uh, a transatlantic to be at the two uh, Live Aid events. So yeah, you're right. It was extreme. It was historic and iconic. Not quite the level of Woodstock, but pretty no. darn close. Very true. Very, very <laughs> true. So now, Barry... You and, uh, you and Sid have something else going on now, don't you? What, writing the book? Yeah. Yeah, Barry's going to, um, he finally got a little free time, and um, he's going to come in in a couple of weeks, two or three weeks from now. <clears throat> we're going to ride around, and Barry's going to call the book Poetry in Sand. Very nice. Any, any thoughts from you on that, Barry? Yeah, I mean, I, it's actually, uh, I, I came, the title came from a misheard lyric. I mean, I, used, I, I love the Beach Boys, uh, no, uh, California Girls, and with that uh, one line, no, uh, no, uh, I, I dig it, no, French bikini by, no, no, by a palm tree in the sand. And I always thought it was, no, writing poetry in the sand. And I always thought that was actually a better lyric, and I, I, I came up with that idea for Sid's book, because I said, Sid is like that in a lot of ways. Like you, you think he's one thing. Uh, you, you see, think he's character in wrestling, or, or you see him in, in interviews as one thing, and then he changes it. And that's what poetry in the sand is. You, you write something out, you write something that you think is really good, and then the tide comes in and washes it away, and then you rewrite it. You all you write something totally different. So I thought that kind of fit. And then the things that don't seem like they would match what I think a lot of people perceive of Sid isn't really who he is. And it's actually part of the reason I didn't originally want to write the book, because I thought it was a close friend of his, how can I do it? I mean, is it, am I just going to have a lot of my own personal feelings about him? Color it. And that's not what Sid wants. Sid likes everything honest. He wants, okay, these are my warrants. These are going to be, there's going to be some stories in here. Can I do it? So it took me a while to try to come up with, a, um, I don't want to use the word device, but in writing, that's, that's the word. How I can write this the way Sid wanted and try to divorce myself from being uh, you know, one of his closest friends, vice versa. So I'm writing it, what, I mean, obviously it's his biography, which means it's his vision, it's his life, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be meta, and in other words, some of the book is going to be obvious, just like you have in, in a movie where, where the actor looks at the camera, breaks the fourth wall, and he goes, I know this is a movie. I'm going to talk to you, the audience, because I know this is a movie, and part of the book will be that where Sid's going to recognize that he's talking to someone who's actually writing his stories down, which gives it a, a certain freedom to say certain things that he is saying, but colored in a way that I am thinking as far as how to write it down. Because uh, I don't want to change his thought process. I don't want to change his life, but I also don't want it to sound like, yeah, this is completely ghostwritten, this isn't him in it, but there is someone who's insisting in the writing. So how do you do that, be true to him, and also do it in a, in, a, in a writing way that would be able to give another perspective. It's not easy to do, so that's why I was really hesitant to do it, and I think I came up with something, and I, and I shared you know, when I, I, I just wrote like the first uh, quarter of the chapter of what it's going to sound like, and he really liked it, so I think, we, I think we're on to something here, so I'm looking forward to, to continuing and finishing it soon. 
Yeah, I'm going to tell you something. All the things I've <clears throat> done in my life, I really believe that this book is going to be the best thing I've ever done. And uh, I've heard uh, Rodney Crowell on the station I listened to, 89.9. He was talking to the lady, the author who it was that wrote his book. I can't remember her name. They were talking about, to do a good book, it might take seven years. And we're at three or four right now. We actually went through one guy named Brandon Wallace. He's the one that helped me with that documentary you got. But we still laugh about how bad his writing was, you know. So then <clears throat> Barry's been really busy. With it. He just got rid of us. He had a cinema called Evening Star Cinema in Brunswick, Maine. And he's trying to get out of that. He's out of that now. And now he's got the time to do it. And we're going to try to get this done. That's awesome. I, I, like, the, I like the the word meta, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I really love, I love that concept of the breaking the fourth wall in a novel. Right. Awesome. Well, it's, it, to me, it's the only way you know to do it because it, it has, it's, it's his book, it's his life, it's his vision, but technically he's not doing the actual writing. But how do you do that and still make it true to him and without completely imposing my, you know, my, my, my view of him? Where it, 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 it was a tough, I mean, that's why, I mean, we actually had a, another book written by a friend of mine. Uh, which should like in some ways, but it didn't quite match what he was looking for. And like I said, I, I was hesitant because it's, it's hard when you're very close to someone to write their story. Because, I mean, you know what I mean? You're just, are you going to be inserting yourself in it? Are you going to be coloring any of it? Is it going to be too hard to do because it's... <clears throat> so it, it, was, it was a tough way for me to figure out, can I do this? write the book that he wants because that's basically I'm serving his vision and his life and do it in a way that still works for me as a writer right and how can we do this where it's his book but I but I I have to have it's not a a narcissistic thing where I said oh my my, I have to be in there but I have to write it in a way that I was comfortable with me but would still work for him you know too Barry now this is something I think I'm smart at and I know I'm not a great writer, and I know Barry is a great writer. Now, I think I do have good ideas, and one of them, and it was, I copied this, and Barry told me it's okay to copy ideas, was when I watched the movie Cold Blood by, and read the book Cold Blood by Truman Capote. One of the things that made it such a good book and which made it in such a good movie that Truman Capote went on site with those guys. He saw the house. He saw the town. He met with the guys. He actually fooled the guys a little bit, and he tried to help them a little bit. If you watch the movie called Capote, Barry's coming here, and we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to show him those 30 miles from my house to the Mississippi River. And he's going to see Will, uh, you know, Jordan, Arkansas, where my great-grandparents were buried, where my great-grandfather's buried with still two shots of uh, slug in his right arm when he was shot that night coming home and killed two, those two guys. So he's going to see those places. He's going to see that shack. He's going to see where my grandfather, great-grandfather, you know, grew their corn, and, and my uncles and great-uncles were all raised, and my aunt, who's special to me, where she came from, and that's going to be all in the book. That's amazing. Guys, I can't wait to see what you guys come up with. Uh, I think it's going to be cool. Well, well, I mean, I, I can tell you what the book is not going to be. I mean, what most people expect for any professional athlete, and especially in wrestling, is, you know, chapter one, when I was five years old, my dad took me on my first wrestling match. And then everything is going to lead up to the part where, you know, with, where the vast majority of people know it, you know, which is this part of his career. And of course, it's going to, it has to be in there because it is a major part of his life, but his life is so much more complicated than that, both before, during, and after. 
So we just, we're, the whole idea is not just to capitalize. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people out there that are huge fans of wrestling, huge fans of, of Sid Vicious, and they'll pick up the book just to read all the stuff that you know, he did and all the things that he said and did to, with and to and, and other people and, and, and make it a dirt book about you know, uh, wrestling that's going to sell as a, you know, as a, as a here, here's all the dirt, here's all the rumors, and who wants to do that? I mean, it's been done to death by athletes and entertainers who are famous, and now here's a book where you're going to read about all the, that type of nonsense. There's so much more, you know, uh, you know, you know the city life, and, and as, as he understands it, the things that affected him, you know, deeply affects him as a child, uh, you know, growing up as an adult. So I, what we're both hoping for, and I think we have the opportunity to do this, is someone who may never have heard of him in wrestling. And all of a sudden, someone says, oh, my God, I just picked up this book. You have to read this. Right. So this guy's life is fascinating, and it can cross over to people who may have zero interest you know, in professional wrestling and have no idea that that's what Sid did. Obviously, I think that crowd will buy the book, and, of course, they're going to be interested. And I think they'll be pleasantly surprised that it's you know, just not one out of a thousand books written in that, in that way. But that's what I think we, we can do, is that this is a man that's lived you know, an unbelievable life still living it and just like writing poetry in the sand every time you think uh, it's it's written in stone and you know who he is and what he's done it changes because that's what it's all been and that's what's always fascinated about it. Um, we're going to end with this Barry the last chapter is this Internet Sid now you think about that and you write that chapter tonight you understand young man <laughs> Internet Sid will be uh, he'll be in the glossary <laughs> there you go <laughs> When I, when I have that one chapter about internet, what, 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 what happened to the book? Who's this guy? Oh, okay. Well, Barry, I'm going to tell you, I know, I, I, I know I caught you late tonight and you just got home from work and stuff. I, I want to tell you, thanks for being on the show tonight, man. I always enjoy talking with you and um, look forward to talking to you again sometime. All right, Sid. Well, we'll, we'll I'll be seeing you down in Arkansas soon. Yeah, and I'll call you tomorrow on your day off. Okay. All right, Barry. All right. Thanks, buddy. And from there, we'll go to our question. Okay. My time is yours. And we have another question. Uh, we have uh, Zach on the line. Uh, what's he got for us? Zach, what's your question tonight? My question is, Sid, what's your relationship uh, relationship like with Sean? And do you ever have any issues with the click? You know, me and Sean uh, met him as he was one of the rockers and we knew each other uh, from Memphis a little bit. We always got along really well. I enjoyed working with Sean. I've said this a million times as, as well as working with anybody in the business. He was one of the top two, three people I loved working with. And then I was friends with Kevin. Me and Kevin rode together when he first came in the business in WCW. And, you know, I knew Sean as well. You know, Waltman, he was a kid. He was just that a kid. You know, and then when I'm sitting down, he's got to look up to me. <laughs> but, no, the thing is, you know, we all got along quite, really well. And uh, knew each other really well. And uh, now the thing about the click, and I think they'll agree with this. That thing was way over exaggerated. You know what I mean? It wasn't like anything what anyone thought. And it was just what it is. Is me and Rob had talked about it. Just like the guys I hung around. You know, uh, Billy and Bart Gunn, Bob Holly, Carl Willett, Ron and Don Harris. It's just when you got to a building, you had fifty, sixty guys. They're not all going to be in the same group. You know what I mean? So, but they did hang out together, and they got that little that little deal being called the click. But it wasn't. They were really good guys to everybody. Uh, they did their own thing too. You had Scott Hall on that. That's what made it the click. And he clicked every time he walks with his bad hips. 
But no, it was, those guys were really good guys, and they're some people I enjoy best in this business. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you for answering my question, Ted. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you, and that's it for this episode. You've been listening to the Vicious Circle Podcast. Your host, Sid Udi. Co-host, J. Robert Bellamy. Additional research by Pete Marsh. The Vicious Circle Podcast was produced by Two Cousin Road Trip Media, a division of JX3 Media Productions. The intro music, Omega Amigo, was by The Shaman. All rights to the podcast are held by Sid Udi.